so Michael, we're going to be talking about relationality. And okay. maybe it makes sense to first start by talking about what we mean by relationality. Okay. Uh, I think that's quite a confused uh, question in, out there in the field. It, in the UK especially, it's really fashionable. Relationality over the last 15, 20 years, it's been one of the big uh, movements that has really expanded uh, the field. But when you look more closely into it, and I was recently running um, a CPD event for the Relational School in London on exactly that topic, what do we mean by relational? We find that under the surface of that common term and the general recognition that it's the relationship that matters in therapy, there is actually not a lot of consensus really. There's really quite a diversity of opinions and definitions as to what relational means. So one way of approaching it would be maybe to think what, what binds the relational movement together is a kind of anti-position towards what they might perceive as non-relational. Mm -hmm. Now, what would that be? Mm -hmm. I think generally speaking, in the States, probably you would call that one-person psychology classical one-person psychology, either of the kind of Freudian variety or behaviorism or any kind of treatment. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the UK, that debate was really very acute in the 1990s in the professional journals here in, in the UK, where it was talked about more as the medical model versus relationship. And out of that conversation came a conference, I think, in the early 2000s, I think the BACP, which is one of the uh, national organizations in the UK, ran a conference with the title, It's the Relationship That Matters. So I think lots of people congregate around that, which is then implicitly in contrast and in contradistinction to the medical model in one-person psychology. Right. So then you ask positively, what do actually people mean by being relational? And then the apparent consensus really disappears quite quickly. Um, I guess most people would say, well, I work with attunement. Well, without attunement, you know, even modern psychoanalysis doesn't work, you know, like following Heinz Kohut and everybody works with attunement. Uh, empathy, you know, well, we all need that. Um, I guess there's another aspect of it where people think of relationality in terms of it being reparative, you know, that, the, that even providing an authentic relationship Uh, some people would mean authentic relationship in the definition of Carl Rogers, that really what we mean by relationality is I thou relating. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that is the consensus. Some people assume that what Carl Rogers meant by I thou relating is roughly equivalent to what in relational psychoanalysis they call mutual recognition or you know, intersubjective mutual recognition, that's also not quite clear whether that actually is the same thing. I don't quite think it is. So basically the consensus breaks down and people don't quite know what we mean. And I think one of the problems of defining the term is that really if you look at it as a community of practitioners, it has emerged in the 90s and early 2000s, mainly in the US through relational psychoanalysis. And there's a whole community of practitioners around that, which then inspired similar organizations and movements in other countries. And they would, their definition of what relationality means suffers from the fact that they are a little bit, or at least originally, they were a bit oblivious of the humanistic tradition and Carl Rogers and all the Uh, I thou dialogical relating that we find in Gestalt that in the you know in body psychotherapy we would just take that for granted that that is part of what we do. Yeah. So so the way it sort of emerged initially as a movement, I think it excluded or to some extent neglected the humanistic definition of uh, relationality that was already well underway since the 1950s 1960s. So maybe just a, it's a moment to pause and say for people who listen to this uh, to just um, say, okay, what do you actually mean yourself by the word re relationality? What the, well, the, the, there was a big um, there was a big paradigm shift uh, that was really very crucial uh, to my development as a therapist, which happened in the UK in the 1990s. Um, 
with the help of uh, one of the elders of the profession in that country called Petrushka Clarkson. And she developed an idea of the multiplicity of um, relational modalities. So she said, relationality isn't one thing. If we look back over the history of psychotherapy the last hundred years, she didn't quite say it like that, but the way I've been teaching it, when I was recently teaching in Pakistan, I've been saying, you could think that the last hundred years have given us the sequence of theories and techniques um, that have evolved out of each other, sometimes in splitting and con contradiction to each other, and that you know, at the end of the 20th century, we were left with a kind of collection of theories and techniques as to how to do psychotherapy. But she would say, well, underneath theories and techniques, what we call the traditional approaches, there are actually relational stances, which she uh, called them kinship metaphors. If you think of an extended family, the way we don't have it in the West these days, there are many kinds of loving. There are many kinds of being helpful, that human beings can be helpful to each other, depending on what kind of kinship they have to each other. There can be kind of more hierarchical helpfulness where, you know, I have a relationship with an elder, an uncle, not just my mother and my father, an uncle, an aunt, um, an elder. Or it could be more on a, on a non-authority level, on an equal level, with a cousin. So she was basically proposing, Patricia Clarkson, that we could think that over the last hundred years, we've, the different therapeutic approaches have discovered the validity of underlying relational modalities. Okay, so maybe let, let's stop a little bit. That's a lot. So that, um, you know, when we talk about relationality, we lump everything together. And something that, say, being in a culture uh, that's more traditional, like, for instance, that of Pakistan, uh, shows that there are many ways within an extended family to experience kinship. And the relationship that you have with an elder is going to be different from, say, the relationship you have with a cousin. And, yes. uh, and so the whole idea in uh, talking about relationship is to pay attention to that multiplicity of ways yes. in which we can be related to others. Yes, and in which we can be relationally helpful to each other yeah. if we then apply that to psychotherapy. So there are different... The way I like to talk about it these days is that there are different relational spaces um, that can all be helpful and found helpful by different clients at different times. And that was how Petrushka Clarkson introduced her idea uh, in the early 1990s, which is then provides a very solid foundation on which we can actually integrate the different traditional psychotherapy approaches which people have found really quite difficult to integrate, let's say, on a theoretical level. And people have tried to build a meta-theory that integrates all the different approaches on, a, on an abstract level, conceptual level, and it doesn't really work very well. Whereas, so so we're, we're talking about, is that talking abstractly actually misses the point that interaction yeah. and therapy is actually a relational process. And in order to better understand that relational process, it makes sense to think of it in terms of the various ways of relating or the various relational spaces. That's right. That's, I think, the paradigm shift that Petrushka Clarkson initiated. Yeah. Because you could think that as long, you know, when starting with Freud, people try to characterize the traditional approaches in terms of theory and technique. People would say, what kind of therapist are you? What is your theory? What's your technique? Now, what over the first hundred years of psychotherapy we weren't aware of is that that actually implies a kind of one-person psychology paradigm, you see, because it's more like a doctor. Mm -hmm. who applies a theory and technique. If, if you come to me and say you want help, psychological help of whatever sort, and then I think of myself as responding to you primarily in terms of a theory and a technique, then you, I treat you more like a case. You know, I will, I will try and perceive you in the context of a theory that I've already learned, right. and I will apply that to you. So by definition, as long as we think of 
the different traditional approaches, mainly in terms of theory and technique, we are actually in a paradigm of one-person psychology. We're really the paradigm, as you say, of the uh, uh, patient-doctor medical model. And yes, so there's yes. three parts. You have um, the uh, medical theory and the body of knowledge that's medical. You have the patient and the doctor or therapist is the intermediary. Uh, yeah. that actually brings this to the client, but not necessarily with the client-patient, the client-therapist um, uh, relationship being central. Yes, and, and I think that is what in the States, Martha Stark, that's the history that she tried to write for psychoanalysis, mm -hmm. where she described, and this is where the terms come from, don't they, from uh, where she described one-person psychology as cl uh, Freud's classical treatment paradigm, and which then in the 50s changed more to what she calls a one-and-a-half-person psychology paradigm, where basically the therapist wasn't fully there as a person, but they were using their counter-transference experience as relevant to the therapeutic relationship. So it wasn't a one-person psychology anymore where only the patient's psychology mattered. Now there was a half, half of the therapist was... Half of their psychology was also relevant. And then she talks about the two-person psychology model. And I think I have got some disagreements with her with how she defines that precisely because she excludes our, the humanistic understanding of two-person psychology, which we would find more in either relating or in gestalt dialogical relating. So when she talks about two-person psychology, she means actually relational psychoanalysis. And she doesn't quite mean what the humanistic people mean by two-person psychology. Yeah. So the relational multiplicity that we then uh, can develop on the basis of Clarkson's proposal can include all of that, which means it can include one-person psychology. I mean, this is one of the things that is a weakness of the – I've written about this – of Clarkson's model, that she actually, by definition, excluded the treatment modality mm – -hmm from psychotherapy, because in her mind, she took it for granted that this is not what psychotherapists do. But I've proposed that we need to reintegrate it, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. it is actually a valid modality of therapeutic relating. And it's a form uh, of relating. It, it, might exactly. be, it might be a weaker form, but it is a form of relating. Yeah, especially if we then think more of traditional family doctors, mm -hmm. you know, who were who often were related, who knew the patient over decades, you know, sometimes having been there at their birth, and, and f traditional family doctors were thinking very much in kind of systemic terms, in a bio, psycho, neurological, systemic way, the way we're really rediscovering it in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So a, a, a doctor, a family doctor like that, uh, would be able to provide a very relational presence yeah. That would certainly be experienced by the patient. So uh, Petrusha Clarkson, when she formulated her proposal in the early 1990s, she was very much caught in, in that uh, polarization between medical model versus relationship. So mm -hmm. we can reintegrate that and say, well, actually, which is something that, that Martha Stark also says when she talks about her model four, whatever that is, that it basically reintegrates one person, one and a half person, and two person psychology, mm -hmm. and that then gives takes us closer to Patricia Clarkson's idea of this multiplicity of relational modalities, yeah. which underlie and underpin all the various theories and techniques that are out there in the field, but that are in a way uh, structured by an underlying diversity of relational modalities or, what, as she says, kinship metaphors. Right, right. So, so then um, uh, when we talk about uh, modalities of therapy, we don't necessarily think about it in terms of the theory that the people who founded that's them or a, even the people who practice them think about. But we think about the nature two of that. Two different, yeah, yeah. There's two different ways of using the word modality. Yeah. So in the UK, we had... We, modality was used equivalent in the way that you're saying, you know, when we think of traditional modalities, we do think more of approaches. Mm -hmm. Whereas what Petrushka Clarkson talks about, when she uses the word modality, it's a completely different category. She means a completely different level of experience. So, yes, we need to distinguish those two different meanings because in the UK, they used to talk about the modality wars, where they basically meant psychoanalytic versus humanistic versus behavioral. Right. So, no, these modalities that Clarkson is talking about, 
they are prior to theory and approach. They are more fundamental. They are about relational spaces. They are about the, the, the position, the relational position that I take as a therapist, which always already creates a sort of universe mm -hmm. of a particular relational space that's based not just on what I'm thinking I'm doing or you know what my left brain intends to do, but it is really who I am as a person and what kind of relational space my personal present generates. Mm -hmm. That includes my theory and technique and all my learning as a therapist, but it is not really just about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so does it make sense to talk a little bit about how one becomes conscious of it and especially how it affects um, either the way of conducting a session or the way of conducting therapy? So I think one way of uh, talking about it that's more relevant to uh, the body psychotherapy tradition mm -hmm. would be to think about how we would write the history of our approach, equivalent to how Martha Stark wrote the history of psychoanalysis. And I think similarly, we could say that Reich had no doubt that he was... Uh, giving treatment like yeah. he when one reads his case studies i think there's all kinds of other things going on there is a deep kind of uh attunement vegetative identification as he calls it you know there's all kinds of other things involved that make the bond um but in terms of the relational stance that he takes uh i think it is a one-person psychology stance and um that manifests theoretically in him, certainly for, for most of his early career, identifying as a psychoanalyst and very clearly, more clearly than the rest of the psychoanalysts, thinking about the transference, but not really thinking about the counter-transference. And I think one of the weaknesses of the body psychotherapy tradition, I got into it, I was reading in the late 70s and I started um, training in the early 1980s in London at the uh, Chiron Institute, Chiron. Um, at that time, uh, one of the, as I reflect later, one of the, the things that we took for granted really was an implicit um, emphasis on the one-person psychology treatment paradigm and Reich's emphasis on the transference. That was all inherent in the model and in character structure theory. That was all clear that, you know, through a particular character structure, there would be a particular kind of transference and that... Uh, what I like to call the wounding object, you know, the the bad parent, mm -hmm. um, uh, would be part and parcel of the transference. But in those days, we certainly didn't think about the counter-transference. Um, or when we thought about it at all, we really thought about it like Freud, mm -hmm. which is basically, uh, and there's this famous paper by David Bordella, I think in 1972, where he writes about tr transference, counter-transference, and interference, where... Uh, our understanding of when we thought about counter-transference at all really was equivalent to Freud's, who basically said counter-transference of the psychoanalyst is just that he's not completely analyzed and it's his own pathology. And we in the humanistic tradition would think equivalently, say, well, if there's anything, if I'm left with any d disturbing after a session and I'm having counter-transference of whatever sort, then that's my stuff. Right. And then I go to supervision, and then my supervisor helps me separate out my stuff from my client's stuff. And if I can do that separation neatly, then I'm qualified and fit to return to the next session because I've separated that out, my stuff from their stuff. Right. So we have, so, we have, two, we have two units and no consciousness of the space and the phenomenology exactly. of what happens in that space. Exactly. And so what... We, I only came across in the mid-80s, which then really began to influence um, how I thought about therapy generally, but relationality more particularly, is that the psychoanalysts actually, or a large chunk of them, actually dis started disagreeing with Freud's definition of the counter-transference since the 1950s, which is what with hindsight now people call the counter-transference revolution in psychoanalysis. So people like Paula Hyman and Heinrich Rucker they talked about how the transference and the counter-transference interlock. So they were thinking about the interrelational, the interwovenness of the two, and then basically came up with the recognition that 
the countertransference can be another royal road into the client's unconscious because it gives us information mm-hmm. via the transference about what really is the client's wounding and what is their unconscious world and their unconscious process. So rather than it being an interference with the therapeutic process, it could be thought of as another royal road uh, that gives us information and that actually deepens the relationship. So that's a that's a completely, um, for me in the 80s, that was a completely new definition and potential of the counter-transference, which then brought me much closer and much more interested in, in psychoanalysis in its more modern versions rather than the classical right. Freudian version. I think in those days we had very much set up uh, Freud and classical psychoanalysis as a straw man that we could be, you know, that we could beat down and dismiss without really taking on board that um, psychoanalysis had developed and there were many schools and many differences within psychoanalysis, just about as many as within the humanistic movement, you know, mm-hmm. that there was all this diversity, but that one of the fundamental recognitions had been uh, uh, the counter-transference revolution. If we take that down more into the nitty-gritty of what actually happens between client and therapist, especially when we think of the two of them as body-minds, then body psychotherapists should really be the first to think about projective identification. You know, the step from what we call resonance, somatic resonance, and vegetative identification into projective identification is only a tiny step. I'm always kind of bemoaning that as body psychotherapists, we should be experts. Right. We should be known as experts on projective identification. Whereas because of this historical development that we sort of, you know, shunned the more modern definition of countertransference. Right. How could we? Uh, how could we think about resonance without thinking actually that uh, uh, an implication of resonance is we're carried into being different? Yes. Well, I think one of the other major uh, shadow aspects of the 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 body psychotherapy tradition then. Uh, is I think it certainly in the 80s its emphasis on catharsis and that we had that I thought we had and I think with hindsight I was really committed to a very idealizing notion of the body and in a way what Rice called liberating the animal. So when I think back to those times now there was a very simplistic idea of the client's internal conflict, basically that there was the life force and the body that needed expression and uh, uh, permission, and that there was some kind of defensive character-structured ego system that was inhibiting all of that and the expression, and that my task as the body psychotherapist was basically to liberate the animal, and that we had this whole array and toolkit of techniques and powerful interventions that we could use to bring that about. So uh, I think in that universe, in that kind of paradigm, um, there's always the assumption that what I resonate with as a therapist really is, um, is only one half of the client's conflict. The, the one half that I have decided is the precious part, which is, you know, in, in those days, we would equate the life force with the body, the spontaneous expression of the body. In some ways, we would equate that with a child, mm-hmm. you know, like the gifted child of Alice Miller, mm-hmm. or we would, you know, the free child in transaction analysis, and that it was my task to liberate all of that. And I, and when I was thinking about resonance in those days, I think... I was assuming I'm resonating with that. What is missing from that way of conceptualizing is the idea of from object relations, which is sort of there in character formation, not quite explicitly enough, is that uh, if there's character formation, then the wounding object, the bad parent, has been internalized, which they are quite clear about in transactional analysis. So that means and this is one of the weaknesses, I think, of character structure theory, that we constantly keep thinking that the body in front of us is the wounded child. Now, this is the, like, if you read Stephen Johnson's character style, right, the, right. Chap- the chapters are headed, um, the used child, the neglected child. So we are thinking of the, the client's body in front of us, 
when we think psychologically in terms of the wounded child. And that is then the part that I would be resonating with. Now, that's a huge shortcut and very counterproductive. And I mean, I got into all kinds of troubles trying to work according to that preconception um, because it ignores the fact that I think we more easily get from an embodied version of object relations that the parent has also been internalized, mm -hmm. that there is a fixated version of the, the wounding parent in the client's body-mind just as much as the child is also arrested and fixated there. Right. So I'm thinking about that conflict, that internalized conflict, which to me is just a slightly more expanded version of character formation. Mm -hmm. And But then resonance becomes a more complicated phenomenon, you see, because the question is, what am I resonating with? Am I resonating with the child or am I also resonating with the internalized parent because right. I'm not I'm not preconceiving the client as a singular entity right or concept. myself or myself as a therapist as exactly. a singular Absolutely. entity so what we're Absolutely. talking about is that um, you know the character formation is not just um, something creating and forming something like a sculptor creating a statue but character formation includes internalization of the parent yeah. uh, yes for the client, obviously, as much as the therapist as any other yes. human being. And yes. so that uh, when we as a therapist focus only uh, on thinking that the only thing that we see in the client is the result of the effect of being formed as a, in a, as a character, we miss uh, you know, having an explicit connection with something or we, yes. we, we are ignoring uh, the, another part. We ignore it yes. also in ourselves. And yes. as a result, all kinds of shit can happen. Uh, but well, I mean, that, that was, I mean, when you wanted to talk about power, sex, and shadow, to me, that is one of the shadow aspects. Yes. That's like, that's, that's something that we do not attend to. It's not in the focus of our uh, awareness. And yes, I think all kinds of uh, negative stuff can happen. I mean, in the, the, the simple upshot of it is, um, that we are then get, getting fixated on a fairly reparative uh, oversimplification of the therapeutic process where it is my task to heal the wounded child, which I have made the focus of my perception and intervention. Right. Um, and then I, I, I fail to understand, which is something that Fritz Perls criticized Reich for very early on, when he was talking about, um, he was criticizing Reich's notion of the defense, and he said that famous thing where he said, you know, in, in the human being, the defense is about as defensive as Hitler's defense ministry in 1933. <laughs> you know, it's, it's aggressive. You know, it has, a, it has an active, aggressive, inhibiting function. There's a lot of energy in it. So if you think of, if you think of the defense, not just as a defense, but if you think of the defense you know, in, like, like we do in, in character formation as a turning against the self, which then involves the turning against the self takes its shape. I'm thinking of Kellerman kind of, you know, mm -hmm. how does the whole body mind organize itself? And so the, inter, uh, the, the, the defense takes its shape from an internalization of the bad parent, or you could say an identification with the aggressor. And so what we're confronted with in Fritz Perls's view is, is that whole conflict where I do not want to uh, preemptively take a side. You know, I'm, I'm going to do therapy for the sake of this wounded child, and therefore I'm going to, uh, you know, put all my focus on that. He said, well, no, what, what wants to happen, if we think of it in Gestalt terms, is a reorganization of the whole conflict. So that means, I, 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 coming back to resonance, I need to resonate with all the parts of the conflict rather than take sides. It's a bit like, think of it like a couple. You know, when you do couple yeah. therapy, one of the first mistakes of couple therapy is that you take a side with one against the other and then you're mincemeat. So the, simp the same thing applies internally. If we oversimplify the internal conflict as well, there is this wounded child as we tend to in character the structure theory, then we neglect that there is another pole internalized parent 
and that we are really confronted with the task of, uh, of, of, of how can that internalized conflict reorganize itself. Right. So we're then resonance becomes we're, difficult. We're missing the action. We're focusing on something that is static. But um, the idea is instead of focusing on something that is static, we pay attention to the action that's underlying what's happening. Yes. And we observe it playing out so that there is a chance for some reorganization, some change in the roles to happen. Yes. So that, to me, that would be a nice... That would be a nice formulation rather than thinking of the character wounding as something that happened a long time ago. I mean, it, that is not, it's not something that Reich didn't say. Yeah. It's constantly being repeated. Mm-hmm. So we could say, I mean, this is one of the things that I've sort of abstracted uh, when I teach. I said, I'm, I'm thinking about three parallel relationships. I'm thinking there was a wounding relationship in the past, which is the original character formation. That becomes internalized as a body-mind process as character formation. And that conflict then becomes re-externalized in the transference counter-transference and reenacted in the transference counter-transference. So we can catch the same wounding dynamic on each and every of these three levels, you know. And uh, and it's something that's constantly reoccurring. The wounding didn't just happen 20, 30, 40 years ago. It's constantly reoccurring and being reenacted, and that is what maintains the character structure. Yeah. So that becomes much more dynamic. Um, because then the relationship becomes more obviously the crucial arena in which the character is constantly reconfirmed in a way through the transference counter transference process and through the the client's pattern evoking in me reactions that re wound them. Yeah. So there's the wounding gets constantly reenacted. Right. Uh, which is what happens in most intimate relationships, but it also happens in, in therapy. If, I, if I'm available to that in a way that doesn't oversimplify, as we've just said, uh, if, it, if I don't oversimplify the relational space and the multiple relational modalities and the multiple relationships that are occurring. Yeah. So, so then um, uh, all of this occurs at an implicit level. Um, yes. And uh, for both the client, the therapist, and so what we're talking about is a sense of being in touch with it at an implicit level, knowing that we're both, you know, uh, studying and trying to help the client, but also very much caught in the same currents. Both involved, yes, exactly. So, and I think that is uh, the big impact that our tradition could have on psychoanalysis and modern psychoanalysis where some of these things are abstractly formulated. You know, in relation to psychoanalysis, they talk about implicit relational knowing now, and but a lot of it is still uh, in the verbal domain in a way that doesn't fully access the implicit, pre-verbal, non-verbal, the way that our tradition has really um, transgenerationally, you know, accumulated all of that expertise, not just in in our perception of the other, but also in our perception of ourselves. So one of the main things that Alan Shaw talks about, or has been talking about for, for a long time, is the, the right brain uh, attunement and perception of these implicit dynamics but always with a sort of assumption, well, because it's the right brain, the left brain doesn't have conscious access to it, and it's subliminal. So that's one of my great gripes with Alan Shaw and and everybody who uses that kind of idea of the right brain attunement, as if uh, the subliminal nature of my, my perception, the right brain perception, is just a given, whereas I think it varies hugely. Over the last 30 years, I am now I, I'm able to be aware of things that I would have been completely oblivious of 30 years ago, and that's mainly a function of my own embodiment. If I'm more available to my own body-mind, subliminal isn't just subliminal. It's not a given. You know, It's a really movable feast. How much of what for other people is a subliminal process I can be aware of. And when I, like when I teach in Pakistan there, for example, one of the key, and this I think is, a, is really important, psychotherapy training you know so much of psychotherapy training even in body psychotherapy is still in the 20th century if we really think that relationality and especially implicit relational knowing and uh, 
are the key, are the foundation, are the key skills of a psychotherapist, then what are we doing in psychotherapy training? I mean, when I did training in the 1980s, there was a lot of experiential work, but over the years, it's become more and more academic, whereas what I'm trying to do when I teach, I make it very experiential. We do role plays, we do live sessions, we do stops and starts, so we can catch up with all these non-verbal and pre-verbal cues that are going on where these dynamics of transference, counter-transference enactments are visible uh, in the in the non-verbal interaction. Right. So, so as I we, think that's a huge thing that uh, body psychotherapy can contribute to the understanding that's out there in the world of you know what they call enactment in relational psychoanalysis. But they don't really know how to work with it other than to talk about it. Whereas I think as a tradition, we have got this huge, vast richness of of perceptive skills, but also intervention skills that could really make that all useful and bring that all more, make that more accessible to therapeutic uh, reflection and intervention. Right, right. So when we're talking about uh, having having arrived at the conceptualization that uh, there is a richness of the relational, it's implicit, uh, the, the, the next step is not to develop more of a vocabulary and of a syntax to talk about it, but actually to use tools and uh, skills and develop the skills that allow us to understand and perceive them more in order to play with them. Well, I think normally, I mean, I don't know whether you've heard Alan Shaw talk recently. I think he's he's been talking about, um, I'm summarizing, condensing what he said, but the essential point was that deep transformation, i.e. transformation of early attachment, early character styles, anything like that, is only possible through client and therapist falling into implicit enactments and recovering from those. Uh, so if we spell that out, what does it mean by enactments? It means reenactments of the wounding dynamics, which happened a long time ago, are constantly reoccurring within the client's character, uh, internal, internalized object relations, and are then also reenacted externally with the therapist. Long before anybody says anything or does anything, even before the therapist has entered the room in a way, some kind of anticipation of that enactment is already present. And then the therapist falls into it, and then it's through falling into it that through the counter-transference revolution, we begin to appreciate that it's a two-person psychology process by which we then can slowly gain some awareness of what the wounding dynamics are because we've been part of acting them out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, where was I going with that? I can't remember what the question was. I, my, my, my suspicion of where you were going is to say that where we add is that as we're aware of somatic markers of that experience and we make our clients aware of it, the understanding is actually a gut-level understanding of the patterns as opposed to some kind of abstract understanding. And so we're able to actually change from there. Yes. Well, I think that's the whole complex question of you know what's our theory of therapeutic action how does the how does deep transformation like Alan Troy is saying about these early patterns actually work and one thing I think that's clear is that it doesn't work from the outside you know any kind of one person psychology approach to it a little bit like the metaphor I sometimes use is of these kind of you know robot arms behind three foot glass operating on some kind of explosive substance there right. it's not really going to work if you know um, because of the delicate, implicit, human, intersubjective nature of it, the therapist needs to get involved and implicated in the wounding. And then the whole thing transforms from within rather than from without. Mm-hmm. So I think there is a consensus about that. But how that actually works, um, most of the people who theorize about uh, enactment and how to recover from enactment, or sometimes people talk about it in terms of rupture and repair, uh, are still very uh, caught in reflective repair, that it is the reflective capacities of the human being, of the therapist, of the therapist and the client, who repair the rupture that has happened implicitly. So there is not yet a clear, comprehensive body-mind formulation of how we recover from enactment. That's really what I've been trying to do now I think for the last 10 years, I'm really trying to get as close as possible to 
thinking from within the therapist's stream of consciousness. And stream of consciousness includes my own body-mind process and all the kind of subliminal, you know, somatic markers and all of that. I've, when I teach that for practical purposes, I usually talk about charged body-mind fragments. Now, like there's my stream of consciousness and I've been perceiving your face, you know, for the last 10 minutes, but it's only in the moment when there is a charged expression, like you know, the facial expression changes or you're frowning or something like that. That's mm -hmm. a charged fragment that stands out, that impacts me and then has an internal infect in me. So I'm thinking about charged body, mind, So something, something similar part. to how animals perceive movement uh, yes. and would not see necessarily something that's... Uh, immobile but yes. the movement is perceived and so the charged moment is uh, is such a moment yes so i think all of our tradition you know movement the idea of charge going all the way back to reich uh, the idea of ripeness you know those are ideas that come from organismic Uh, roots, you know, of, of embodiment is really crucial to formulating those kinds of uh, ideas, and I don't think they are quite uh, taken on board yet in most theories of therapeutic action. That the same intervention that I made a minute ago was disastrous, but it could be, you know, depending on the on the kind of embodied body mind process ripeness between of us, it could be really just the right thing a minute later or the other way around. Right. So so how would we know about that as therapists? I think because so much of the psychotherapeutic field outside body psychotherapy and somatic psychology is still too stuck in kind of left brain machinations. They don't have access to really the foundations on which one would uh, decide implicitly, intuitively, what's ripe, what's not right, what's a charged fragment, what is the relational significance of a charged fragment. Like when I was teaching in Pakistan just now, we had a beautiful session where a whole narrative, a whole family constellation arose from one little charged hand movement. You know, there was just one hand movement that had a whole story in it, both in terms of its expressiveness, but also its inhibition, you know, which is that point that we were talking about earlier in terms of the internalizing. How yeah. Yes, exactly, how Pearls criticized Reich. And if we take that then further into object relations, then the hand movement isn't just a hand movement that expresses a feeling, it also conveys the inhibition of the expression. So all the objects and all the, the whole wounding dynamic is actually inherent in, in that hand gesture. Right. And then the, and then the whole uh, narrative of the family scenario within the context within which that occurred can unfold from within one charged gesture, a body-mind fragment like that. So as you talk this way, uh, I'm thinking about the diagrams in physics about forces and say so you have a force going this way and a force going this way and you have the resulting force that's uh, you know the result of all of this and so the image of um, you know as we act as we are as we live a sense of the pressures that come from different directions and who we are and how we act is the result of how we organize to face these pressures. And uh, what you're talking about is being very conscious in observing something uh, as this interplay of forces yes. that are not necessarily visible uh, to the open eye, but that's why we have the trained eye of thinking in terms of these pressures, of thinking in terms of body awareness, to see it brought from outside, but also from inside. Well, I think in our tradition, We have a deep understanding that my character structure conditions perception mm -hmm. and that my whole being, you know, my character structure opens up and discloses a whole particular experiential universe, but it also shuts out other possible universes. And so I think we understand, like few other therapeutic traditions understand, mainly through our own experience of going through all kinds of heaven and hell of regression and catharsis and, you know, full expression of deep raw emotion, just how many universes of experience, feeling and perception we can inhabit. And so I think that is the kind of the, the whole spectrum, that palette 
that a body psychotherapist can draw from when they are perceiving the subtlety of somebody else's charged body-mind fragment. Yeah. And, and so in our tradition, we don't have as much of that bias that we filter everything through some kind of languaged, reflected, already categorized, named uh, uh, kind of conceptual system. But, you know, like, like uh, Reich was using that phrase, the, you know, the, the, oh no, uh, William Connell used that phrase, the expressive language of the living. You know, mm -hmm. and all the neuroscience, like with murmur neurons, and they confirm that. You know, yeah. like I just watched Vittorio Galese talk about, you know, um, extending the idea of mirror neurons to embodied simulation. That the way we know what's going on in somebody else is because inside ourselves, we, our body, our body mind simulates what I perceive to be your internal state, mm -hmm. and that is something that I think. When Reich talked about vegetative identification, he sort of was pointing in the same direction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think we can use that. So that that is what I'm what I've been trying to do over the last ten years to bring all the relational subtlety that has been developed in the psychoanalytic domain, including countertransference, projective identification, enactment, all of those ideas, but to bring a body-mind phenomenology to them. So we get the best from both traditions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So in a way that um, uh, we came to a similar place, but uh, there is an enrichment that can come from our tradition of paying attention to actually the experience of embodiment. Well, I think especially in the modern somatic trauma therapies, which are obviously, you know, wonderful the way they they have contributed to the field of trauma therapy and, you know, how much more effectiveness is available in trauma treatment these days through the body psychotherapy tradition feeding into that and how it's increasingly recognized. But one of the downsides, even of the modern versions of body psychotherapy and somatic psychology is that they still carry a lot of one-person psychology elements and attitudes within mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. So I think we can, like the kinds of terms that we use in terms of implicit relational knowing, somatic markers, resonance, these are very common terms across the whole field of body psychotherapy. Um, and they would suggest that we have this particular embodied uh, privileged access to relationality in that way, which I think is partly true. But a lot of that of you know and I had to battle with that um, you know in my own development as a body psychotherapist and with my colleagues there at the Sheeran Center we went through intense polarizations and fights and conflicts about this because I think traditionally because of what we talked about seeing using character structure theory to mainly see the wounded child a lot of what we were trying to do was reparative mm-hmm And maybe the reparative technique included some kind of catharsis and expression and expression of hostility. It wasn't all kind of cozy and cuddly and pink and fluffy. Um, but in the back of our minds, we had an overall reparative idea. And many people in body psychotherapy think relationality equates with a reparative attitude, you know, that we, that we care about, that our heart is open, we care about... Um, obviously the client's well-being in a deep embodied kind of way and that and that we want we are we have an understanding a deep and tuned understanding of their woundedness and that therapy is partly or it's largely about helping them repair that woundedness so are, Now, you, are you talking about maybe as opposed to reparative to think of it in terms of renegotiating well you see For the first 10 years that I was trained as a body psychotherapist, I, I fancied myself as this body magician who could effect that kind of um, Repair. reparative therapeutic process. Now, that is not two-person psychology. One of the hidden shadow aspects, certainly of the kind of body psychotherapy that I was involved with, Uh, which was a very feminine version. It was inspired by Gerda Boysen. And she was, you know, if we kind of characterize it, we could say it's a kind of earth mother type of 
melting the character armor. It's not a kind of cracking the walnut of character <laughs> armor. It's a melting the character armor kind of approach in a kind of nurturing way. So we nurture them into transcendence of the, the client, into transcendence of their character from uh, character structure rather than, you know, confronting them and cracking it. Um, but the hidden, the hidden um, unacknowledged uh, implication is there cannot be repair until I've diagnosed something. Right. I have to diagnose a wound in order to repair it. So I actually do take, even if I have a predominantly reparative, nurturing attitude, what's hidden is that I have actually made a quasi-medical doctor assessment, diagnostic yeah. assessment of what the wound is. Because the space, which takes me, the space of relationship is that, that modality of relationship that is the doctor uh, with the client. Yes, and, yes, and that was very hidden. Yeah. That is that goes right back to Reich. Whether you have a kind of bioenergetics approach, which is more confronting and stress positions and all the rest of it, or whether you have a Goethe Boysen approach, the the prior assumption always is of the therapist as the re, the healer, the repairing object, in contrast to the bad parent that happened long time ago, and now we are the better parent who makes up for this, and it's always based on an implicit. And often accurate. I'm not debating the accuracy of the perception. You know, with character styles, with that whole theory and that whole tradition in, um, of of that of that uh, notion, I think we have an incredibly uh, accurate tool for perceiving the woundedness, the characterological, you know, embodied woundedness of another person. I, I'm not debating the accuracy of it. All I'm saying is that as soon as we use the tool, we are not in an I-thou relationship. Right. We are in an I-it relationship like a doctor. Now, we, as we said earlier, we can reformulate the doctor relationship into something that's actually valid and beneficial and helpful that we can embrace. But we certainly didn't do that in the early 80s because... Mm -hmm. Our whole meta-psychology was very much in the humanistic realm of, you know, we're not doctors, we're not doing treatment, it's an I-thou authentic relationship that you and I are having, and we were trying to get away from any kind of hierarchy, mm -hmm. any kind of authority. Like, this was really the 60s kind of anti-authoritarian bias towards egalitarianism. Now, the thing is that most character, characterological woundedness, by definition, occurs uh, within huge power differential, there's a parent, there's a child, you know, there's a huge power differential. So if I'm now maintaining a therapeutic relationship with you that is constrained by it having to be equal, you know, because client and therapist are humanistically meant to be equal, I don't actually get to the relational roots of the wounding if I'm avoiding inequality. Right. So to me, these are shadow aspects that that I was completely at the mercy of and bamboozled by in the 1980s with that was I couldn't conceive of the fact that as much as I was dedicated to repairing the characterological woundedness of my client, I would have to be a Reichian kind of diagnostic functionalist who would say, well, there is a woundedness there. Look, it's in your body. You're hardly breathing, you know, and look how you're limping there and how your pelvis is pulled back and all the rest of it. So I had a whole functional diagnosis, but I was disavowing it because I, that would have put me into a kind of doctor-like authority position. Mm -hmm. So these contradictions between the reparative versus the medical model I think they are still largely undigested in the body psychotherapy field. So when it then comes to trauma, where really the repair is very urgent because we feel we resonate so much with the, with the terror and the urgency, then I think most modern somatic trauma therapies fall into one-person psychology because we desperately, urgently want to be effectively repairing the terror state and the traumatized state. So then we are oblivious of um, uh, the stance that we're taking and the strong tendency that we're actually reenacting uh, an, an authority relationship that we are officially disavowing because we are humanistic therapists. Right. right. So it's not a two-person psychology then. So when Alan Shaw says, well, actually, if you want character, I mean, this may work all very well on single event trauma in adult life. 
but as soon my wife and I, we wrote an article about this recently for a UK uh, journal, really confronting the, uh, this, the, the claim of most modern trauma therapies that they can nonchalantly extrapolate from working on single event trauma later in life, like a car accident or something like that, to developmental trauma, because it's mm. both trauma and the same principles apply and the same neurophysiology applies. So therefore, we can treat developmental trauma in the same way that we treat single event trauma later in life. So we are, we're challenging that because there is no way that one can treat developmental trauma without relational complications. Mm -hmm. And so the more people are taking, are, are taking a one-person psychology stance, treatment stance, and expanding that and extending that to treating developmental trauma, which is sort of the province of, you know, psychoanalysis, characterological, long-term therapy, deep depth therapy, um, there's all kinds of fallout that happens because people don't attend to the relational complications and they think they've got this somatic silver bullet of a technology that is going to solve everything right. when actually there's, there's all kinds of relational complications that happen. So that's one of the main areas where relationality um, is not attended to sufficiently. Right, right. In my right. view. Because essentially uh, the trauma uh, is actually what happened from the relational space that the child was when it happened. Exactly. And exactly. so if we simply deal with the trauma, we're not dealing with what it is that created it. Yes, and Alan Shaw would say that that true transformation of the whole embodied neurobiophysiology of the, of the traumatized state and identity cannot happen without another human being really getting involved and in a way reenacting the wounding. You could say in simple terms, that neuroplasticity is available in the reenactment of the wounding dynamic. Right. So the therapist needs to be implicated, and often they are implicated without them even noticing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So this is one of the things that where we, if we can, if we can combine and integrate those two traditions, the tradition of relationality in a more psychoanalytic uh, fashion and trajectory, with all that accumulated wealth that we talked about of implicit relational knowing, somatic, you know, our own embodiedness, and the way that vastly extends the realm of what other people call subliminal perception, mm -hmm. then I think we can do much more justice to, um, to the relational complications um, of, uh, of the enactment of the wounding on, you know, in, in a relational space that we can then think about as a body-mind process. Great. So I'm always talking about the holistic phenomenology of enactment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's Great. the thing that I think we really want to get down to. I mean, what that means in really simple terms, in trauma therapy, because we just talked about in that article, we basically argue that uh, in any traumatizing, uh, develop, certainly developmentally traumatizing situation, we can really use that simple idea of the drama triangle, although they originally they meant something else with it. But in trauma therapy, it's quite kind of uh, common these days to talk about that, the victim, the perpetrator, and the rescuer. And then we add a fourth person to that, which is the kind of the, the indifferent bystander. And we could say in simple terms that whenever any kind of trauma is constellated or being worked on, that these four figures are somehow in the field. And that they, they can be manifested and enacted by both client and therapist alike. So between client and therapist, those relational positions, that would be the sort of base, you know, that the, the, the minimum number of bases that we want to have in awareness, we want to cover. Where is the victim? Where's the perpetrator? Where's the bystander? Where's the rescuer? How are we configuring ourselves in the relational space right now? And how are they present? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we're talking would, about bring, yeah. we're talking about reconfiguring the relational space that was at the time uh, the uh, victim quote unquote that did not have the capacity to make sense of, and uh, in order to reconfigure it, it's a it's an active process of um, uh, going through it as opposed to an intellectual process of making of sense operating of it. on it. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. I mean, I would say, I mean. <laughs> The, the precious thing that 
body psychotherapy tradition and the somatic trauma therapies can add to what would otherwise still be talking therapy type treatment, you know, working on the shame around the trauma and CBT and all, you know, that we understand that for the traumatized person, it's a question primarily of biology and yeah. regulation, affect regulation, or, you know, of arousal, freezing and overwhelm. And making sense really comes you know, much later. Right. You know, the traumatized person doesn't give a toss about making sense of it. They just want to be less at the mercy of, you know, being in some kind of cauldron of heat and cold and frozenness. And they want to return to more a living, pulsating, regulated state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think we understand that in the body, which is why all these terms like that, are, that I said, this comes from our tradition, the idea of ripeness, the yeah. idea of, you know, cycles, the vasomotoric cycle or the gestalt cycle. Uh, we understand that instinctively, and we have been trained to understand that over you know, 80, 90 years of our tradition in a way that the talking therapies really haven't. It's largely absent. They can theorize about it and philosophize about implicit relational knowing, but they don't have the transgenerationally accumulated expertise mm -hmm, of, mm -hmm. of their own embodiment to yeah. actually translate it into practice, I think. Right, 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 right. But I think the shadow aspect of body psychotherapy is that still we are we are only covering some of the corners of what Petrushka Clarkson would would think of as the full comprehensive spectrum of relational modalities. Mm -hmm. So in simple terms, most body psychotherapists still do not think of how are, am I enacting the wounding object. How am I with my intervention when I'm like, let's say I'm, 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 I'm nudging somebody to scream or make a noise. Yeah. Simple body psychotherapy intervention. Um, and most body psychotherapists that I come in contact with, they would think, well, there is somebody out there. Let's put them on a cushion, you know, that you scream at your father, your mom, your somebody, you know, your boss. And now kind of, you know, express your hostility towards them most body psychotherapists would not be wondering who am I becoming in the transference right. when I'm making that intervention. You know, right. I'm also becoming an authority that is now kind of further imposing on this client right. under all kinds of uh, therapeutic benign intentions. But that enactment of me being an authority that now gives instructions again, that would... Uh, not be noticed by many body psychotherapists because they're so focused on the body-mind coherence of the client in relation to some other bad object. Right. Whereas, I, whereas right. I'm thinking, I'm constantly wanting to track, you know, like I said, I mean, you could think of it, the, the most simple version of it would be, you know, the, the drama quadrangle, the, the, the trauma quadrangle, that uh, when I was teaching in Pakistan just now, we we really slowed many sessions down um, to the point where we discovered many characters. You know, there is like like one language that we started developing was of the fairy godmother. You know, that for the wounded child, there often is some kind of fantasy of a fairy godmother or fairy godfather who who was absent in the original scenario. But often the therapist, out of their care and love and empathy, would make interventions that that would be kind of would be perceived as a manifestation of the fairy godparent, uh, but that would then be perceived as defensive because the client would also instinctively, unconsciously know that the therapist is protecting themselves against becoming the bad object. Mm -hmm. So there would be kind of the therapist would be contributing to a splitting of the transference into an idealized transference and the negative transference. And so how body psychotherapists can work to take on the negative transference in relation to themselves as they are working, right. I think that's not quite established enough. Great. But it's a, that's a very... So maybe that might be a good conclusion in the sense of not a conclusion that's an end point, but a conclusion that is an invitation to curiosity about a vast open field uh, that makes our work more interesting. Well, to me, 
uh, it was only because I have I had to teach um, people who are very unfamiliar with the whole idea of embodiment. And you know, in Pakistan, this is not really at all. It's, it's an integrative counseling course. So the idea of body psychotherapy, somatic psychology, embodiment is really beyond their their conception of the the kind of therapy that they are doing. So I had to really keep it simple and keep it as close to the therapist's stream of consciousness and phenomenological experience and keep simple language rather than bandy about kind of what we think we know are kind of the concepts of body psychotherapy to keep it really very close to the therapist's experience and then how to, like, like I said, how to, for example, draw out the whole wounding scenario out of the therapist's usually accurate perception of a charged body-mind fragment. So there's this whole question, as you said, there's this whole field of investigation. How can we, how can we bring, you know, 90 years of body psychotherapy understanding to a body-mind theory of therapeutic action? Mm -hmm. When most theories of therapeutic action are still so traditionally biased towards theory and technique, they don't really take into account relational spaces and they don't really take into account the body-mind process of the relational field. So there's lots to do. There's, uh, it's, it's exciting, yes. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. It was a pleasure. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website relationalimplicit.com.